Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. What is nothing? Now that's deep. What in the fuck are we doing here? What is something? That's deep, bro. Oh, hi. <laughs> Welcome to That's Deep, bro. I'm your host, Christina P. Thank you for downloading this episode of That's Deep, bro. Got a big one for you. Lots of emails to go over. In this episode, I'm also going to discuss what does it exactly mean to get your life? I mean, yeah, I say it a lot. And uh, yes, I love the Braxtons and Tamar Braxton who said it first. But uh, what is what is the essence of getting your life? So let's talk about that. Before some business, upcoming dates, guys. Um, August 23rd, your mom's house live, West Palm Beach Improv in West Palm Beach, Florida. And then September 22nd and 23rd, I'm in St. Lucetitz, Missouri at Herium, Herium Comedy Club. And then October 3rd, Nashville, Tennessee at the Zanies there. And then October 4th, Charlotte, North Carolina at the Comedy Zone. And then October 8th, your mom's house live in Spermvine, California. This is to make up for the... Uh, uh, July 9th show we had to cancel. And I and I know I said earlier that we'd be honoring those tickets, and I'm sorry, I was mistaken. I was misinformed. Uh, they're actually going to reimburse you on that ticket, and then you can go ahead and purchase a ticket to the October 8th show. So apologies, guys. Mommy was misinformed. And sometimes it happens. <laughs> okay. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silence. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easier. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Let's party, dudes. I'm, um, I'm feeling my... Ooh, I'm feeling kind of feeling kind of spicy today kind of kind of rebellious kind of like a rebel mom (laughs) kind of like a gen x rebel mom
Jane's Addiction. L.A. band, man. L.A. band. So uh, in the summer of 1991, I went to Lollapalooza. I was 14, or I just turned 15 years old. And Jane's Addiction, Susie and the Banshees, uh, Ice-T's band, Body Count, I believe like Fishbone, and I'm sure some other people I'm forgetting were headlining, co-headlining, whatever that show. And uh, in that summer, I did acid for the first time at Lollapalooza, and I took two hits of acid, black gel acid, instead of one hit like you're supposed to the first time you take acid. And I freaked the fuck out and I had to leave uh, during Jane's addiction, which really sucks because they broke up and I, I never I never got to see them again. I got to see porno for pyros, but that's fucking, come on, that's not really, it's not the same. You can't replicate uh you know, you can't, you can't replicate uh, magic of band members together. It's so weird. Like, um, you know, like the Pixies are touring, but fuck off because Kim Deal's not in it. Kim Deal's the bassist. You all know that I have the sacred uh, triad of girl rockers. It goes Susie and the Banshees, well, Susie Sue, Kim Deal, Kim Gordon. That's the magic triangle of like Gen X, uh, rocker priestesses and and you know what fuck the pixies no kim no deal i ain't saying i ain't seen them but i am gonna see the breeders so i'm very excited in november in la so big news mom is gonna go out and see a concert that never happens i don't leave my house for anything really especially a, a public concert <laughs> are you kidding me porta bodies drinking beer out of plastic cups uh for the breeders i will but that's it that's it um, so yeah, there we go. The, so that's the, that's the fun stuff in my life. I watched a movie last night called 20th century women on recommendation of a friend and it's so good, man. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's about a single mom in 1979 raising her teenage boy. And, uh, if you're a Gen Xer like me or even curious about that era and what it looked like and sounded like, it's pretty fucking cool. I mean, I was like, th- you know, three years old in 79, but uh, I'm on the tail end of that generation and I grew up listening to the same music and I was always too young to do what the older girls were doing, but I always wanted to be doing all that stuff. I feel like there, it's funny. I heard Kristen Wiig in an interview. They were like, what were the boy bands for you growing up? And she goes, Duran Duran. <laughs> Cause there were, there were no boy bands yet. There new kids on the block did not exist. It was like, you just listen to what the bigger kids listen to. So you grew up listening to Susie and the Banshees and you know, the cure and, um, Thompson twins and black flag and the talking heads when you were a little kid. Cause that's, that's what they had for us. There was, there were no children. There was no children's programming back then. It was like, you're just doing this shit. Every, you're just, a, you're, you're in a child's body, but you're treated as an adult. That's basically what happened up until 1980 something when people were like, Oh, you mean children are, they have the, the psychology of smaller undeveloped humans. <laughs> and then they commodified the shit out of that. And that's why you have things like baby Einstein, where now you can teach your infant child five different languages by the time they're eight months old. And uh, you should be listening. You should put, be putting headphones on your pregnant belly so that your child can uh, be lulled to sleep by Mozart in utero so that we can all be born geniuses, right? That's the goal is to outdo one another and, uh, and be special because we're all special, guys. We're all special snowflakes. <laughs> You, you don't have to work either to be special. You just you're just born awesome. Uh, so there, I had a wonderful thing happen to me this week. I uh, I got a little sicky, not not a lot, just like a little yucky, like a little a little huh, a little tickle in the throat. And you know, I whenever I do that, I like to honor I honor my body, I honor what I'm going through, and I I just kind of you know I, I my foot's usually on the accelerator pretty fucking hard, right? Like I wake up, I'm the mom, I'm in charge of the goddamn house. I make sure that kid's out of bed. I make sure the kid's diapers change. I make sure that there's breakfast on the table, that the dogs are fed. And then, you know, in my mind, I'm steering the ship. It's all down to me. And so this week I wasn't, I wasn't feeling up to snuff. And I, I just decided like, what would happen if I decided to, um, not in my mind, be the active controller of everything around me. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm a little disappointed and dismayed, but shit went on just as it normally did without me, uh, controlling it or feeling as though I had to control it. 
I'm so upset that the sky didn't fall because I wasn't feeling well and I didn't do the things I normally did. I can't, I can't believe it. I can't believe that my husband picked up the slack on things I normally did. And, uh, yeah. And, and shit just didn't get done. It's just, and it was fine and it was totally fine. Nothing happened. It's so, isn't that interesting? Uh, and I was reading something from my favorite Swami, Sajidananda. He says that I was reading this post because I subscribe to him on an app, you know, every day you get your Swami saying, and I said that illness is created in the body from past experiences, past things that you aren't addressing turn into illnesses later, which is so true. Uh, cause the week before, you know, last week, Tom and I were alone with the kiddo and we, we decided to go away on a, that three day vacation I was telling you about. And of course we ground, we ground ourselves into the ground, ground ourselves. We grinded, grinded ourselves down into the ground, trying to do everything right. We got to go to the beach and then we got to go to the pool and then we got to go to yeah, make this a uh, family experience. You know, we just didn't, there was no chill. And, and looking back, like when there's no chill in my life, I immediately go into overdrive and then I overcompensate and then I get sick. And then I guess, isn't that what happens to all of us really is you, you overdo it and then, uh, and then you got to pay for it, but you got to pay the piper. You got to lay down, you know, when your body tells you to fuck off, just fuck off. Anyways, so that's my life this week. Very exciting. All good. Um, I've been getting some really killer emails from you guys and I wanted to, um, to start off with a philosophy of what is getting your life. Now, I say that phrase a lot on this show. It came from Tamar Braxton on my favorite show, The Braxton Family Values. I love the Braxton sisters. And Tamar was always saying that like season, I don't know, three, three four seasons ago. She's like, you better get your life. You better get your life. And, uh, and I started to think about, well, that's a, that's a really you know, it sounds silly on the surface, like you better get your life. But I kept saying it and we were saying it as a joke. And I thought, you know, that is kind of uh, meaningful, right? It's, it's said as a, a throwaway funny thing, like, girl, you better get your life. But it, it is meaningful to me because that's a perfect phrase for, um, I think so many of us that are on the, the path of, of uh, trying to to improve our, our station in life, to improve and get better and get uh, healed and whole and and uh, and do good shit in the world and be good people. And so, uh, so what is that? What does that mean to get your life? And I'll tell you what it means to me today. And um, I don't know; it can mean something totally uh, different to you. But uh, but this is as far as this show goes. Um, yeah. So, getting your life. Number one, I, my core philosophy in life as a human being on this fucking planet, it, it starts with Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, a French existentialist philosopher, um, was with Simone de Beauvoir, another French philosopher, the two is them, uh, we're a couple writing books. I love, I love couples that are creative together as obviously I've married another comedian. And I, I love the idea of people working together and being romantically involved. Cause if you can find that mix, that's pretty, uh, I think pretty rare. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work, but you know, whatever I'm, the, for them it worked and that's awesome. So the, um, the idea comes out of existentialism and, uh, which is a philosophy for the most part, I really, really resonate with. Um, and I have, I've, and I have for, half my life. If you want to know what I'm talking about, there is a small book. It is a very quick read by Jean-Paul Sartre, S-A-R-T-R-E, Sartre. And it is called Existentialism and Human Emotions. You can buy it on Amazon. It is a quick read. And in it, it kind of outlines the premise of existentialism as Sartre saw it. And I do believe he is a father of that philosophy. He and Heidegger are credited, I think, I think, don't quote me on that, with, uh, with the, the fathers and, and Kierkegaard, I, too, I believe, too. So in philosophy, there was uh, René Descartes, another froggy Frenchie, and Descartes said that essence precedes existence. And what the fuck does that mean? It means that one's essence is written in the stars. It is a, your essence, your being, that which you are made of, who you are, what you are, your essence is already complete before, before your existence, before you're born, the existence of souls. And really the reason that he said that is to complete his theory that God exists and that there is this extra mental world 
um, where <laughs> celestial beings and God and the angels, it all exists. It's all very neat and tidy. So that there's a reason for it. And anyways, essence precedes existence. So you are defined prior to your existence. If you are a woman, you are essentially a woman. The essence of you is woman and you are made of these modalities and ways of being that are that are key to that of a woman. You're defined by your essence. So these are fixed traits. These are not traits that can be changed. They are immutable, as they like to say in the world of philosophy. Immutable, meaning unchangeable, which is fancy words. And um, and you're stuck. So if you're born a, a you know a black man, the essence of a black man, that's who you are. If you're a white woman, you're just a white woman, and these are the traits of a white woman, and you can be reduced down to these essential traits. So Jean-Paul Sartre comes along, and existentialism comes along in the World War II era. Uh, these are people that were very disillusioned with the world, with um, with the idealism of of a Descartes era, where people believed that reason could uh, that reason could solve all of life's problems, all the world's problems. Uh, you know, people in Descartes and, and modernity and all that, the science. The, the era of enlightenment where people thought that like with Kant and everything that you could simply reason people into being decent. Uh, you could use education and science to further the cause of rational life on earth. And of course we know that that is fucking failed. So not entirely. I do think the world is a lot better now, but whatever the point is, uh, Sartre comes along and he flips Descartes' essence precedes existence and flips it to say, no, no, no. It is not that you're born essentially a man, a woman, a whatever, whatever, a dog, a cat. It's that existence precedes essence. So he he flips it. And by that meaning, you can determine who you are, that your existence in the form of whatever personage you came in, whatever being you came to this planet in, if you're a, a... you know, an Asian lady or a whatever fucking form, Indian, black, white, red, yellow, green, blue, purple, alien, monster, cow, that it doesn't mean that you're beholden to your essential nature. And Simone de Beauvoir was huge on this. And she wrote uh, the second sex feminist treatise, huge book, very thick book, not very thin book. It is a Herculean effort to go to get through, but but it's all based on the premise that uh, that life is rooted in choice and that just because you're born in a certain form, it doesn't mean that you're beholden to that form and that you don't have choice. And, uh, you know, amongst many other things of this philosophy, I'm reducing it down to these two prem- I'm only telling you two premises because uh, they're, they're useful. So there. Uh, but I love this idea in existentialism. I love this idea that one can actively choose who they are, uh, what the, what their essential nature is. It isn't that you're born into the world a girl and therefore you must be X, Y, and Z. Society will tell you so, absolutely. But there's no rule that says you must be a certain way or this or that or the other thing. And I think for me, getting your life, number one, is that essential realization that you are not your race, your gender, uh, your educational background, your societal background, your upbringing, you are not your, um, you're not your station in life. You're not, you're not where you came from. Even you are not necessarily the daughter of so-and-so or this and that you're not all these things. You are who you think you are really at the end of the day. I mean, yes, you're made of these things, um, in a practical sense, obviously you can't undo these things, but they don't necessarily have to burden you or hold you and a, a place in life. And I think that that's really, really, really uh, key to getting your life, okay? Not living also out of fear. That's like a fucking, that, that to me, you know, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, I love him. And I watch him on Instagram and on YouTube. And his whole thing, and he talks a lot about, is fear and uh, feeling fear and, and uh, the fear of judgment of others the fear of failure, um, giving a fuck about what people think of you, the fear of retribution. Sometimes we act in ways and we're afraid that our family won't like us, our friends won't like us. We're afraid of as much of success as we are of failure. Believe it or not, fear of of success is uh, probably 
greater sometimes than your fear of failure because now you got more to lose, right? (laughs) If you're successful, you're trying to be successful. It's even scarier to try stuff than it is to fail and try again and fail and try again. But success is scary as shit too. Um, but yeah, fear. And that's such a, a primal thing. And that's, that's wired into you, right? As a human being for survival, fear is also a very healthy trait. It helps you avoid disaster. It helps you care for your young, avoid being killed, et cetera, et cetera. But it can also really cripple and hobble you in terms of, you know, personal growth, choosing a career, choosing a mate, moving the fuck out of your small town and finding your tribe in a bigger city, uh, you know, coming out of the closet, whatever the fuck it is that you're, you're, you know, in your heart is your thing and you can't do it because of fear. So getting your life is also about getting, um, over your fear. Now, what else did I want? Oh, and also there's this other great idea I've always, uh, I always think about when I do the show too. There's a Christian philosopher by the name of Martin Buber, B-U-B-E-R, and um, he talks about two different relationships. There's an I-it relationship and there's an I-thou relationship. And an I-it relationship is me uh, relating to this bottle of water. Let's say I could, it's an object that I am using or having a, a, a relationship with, but not in a meaningful sort of way. There's no metaphysical, whatever, woo-woo, spiritual energy between uh, this bottle of water and myself, I just grab it and then it's down on the floor, blah, blah, blah. It has no meaning. And then there are I thou relationships, relationships that you feel a connection to something, other person. It's usually another being. It's really, I don't even know if you can have an I thou. Maybe you can, yeah, with a bottle of water. But it's generally in between people or things that have meaning and purpose, right? So, uh, I believe Martin Buber uses the example of a horse where you look into a horse's eyes and you feel a connection to a horse and you um, you have a feeling. There's, a, there's that intangible, you know what I'm talking about, that intangible sort of feeling of goodness, of like humanity, of love that you have in connection to something um, or someone, most likely it's a one. <laughs> but I thou's can also happen um, in pursuit of things that you love doing. For instance, with when I, you know, sit down to write jokes or do the show or whatever, time kind of disappears. And I think the key to getting your life is also finding the I thou's. And that can be in people, right? The person who you spend hours with and time goes and it's great and it's it's meaningful connection. Um, and to avoid the I it's as much as possible. <laughs> I mean I it's are are necessary, but to find the I thou's in your life, the things that you're really connected to and that time passes easily and it's uh, meaningful, meaningful connections, right? So uh, that's another part of getting your life. And also I love this idea from a guy named Martin Heidegger, a German existentialist, for not sorry, phenomenologist, uh, philosopher. And he talks about the meaning of life, the meaning of being, rather, capital B, being. The meaning of being is located in care. Care, what we lend our care to, meaning what we lend our attention to. And it, I always translated that to, and that's a very philosophical abstract, right? That's the abstract. I, the meaning of being is, is located in care, what I care for, what I care about, whom I care for, who I care about, whatever. Um, but I've always also translated that to mean what I give my attention to, what I give my priorities to, and what I fucking care about, right? So, and I think to maximize your happiness in this world and maximize your um, life getting, you got to really focus on your own garden. You know, you can't even, I, I mean, and I mean this in every sense of the word, like just tend your own garden, tend to your spouse tend to your cat, tend to your dog, tend to your babies, tend to your your own garden. And don't fucking think about what so-and-so's doing on, on social media or what, you know, this relative is doing to screw you over or do this thing to you. And because there's always, there's always a temptation to get into other people's care, right? To get into other people's gardens. And I, I think the key is being able to have empathy for other people and, and their, their stuff that they're going through and, and if they're worthy of your empathy, giving it to them. Uh, but to not get swept away in their 
drama too, to not get so wrapped up um, in other people's shit, basically. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm telling you, it sounds small and that's, it's so small. It is such a small thing to not get into other people's drama. And I don't mean don't listen to your friends who are having a troubled situation. I'm just saying, don't let yourself get sucked, right? Sucked into it. The, there, and also beware of the vampires. I've talked about that on this show, emotional vampires, the people that would, uh, they take advantage of kind souls and they leech your, your time and your energy. And, uh, these are usually people with personality disorders of some type that, uh, that will suckle, suckle at the teat of a sympathetic ear. So guard your time, guard your care <laughs> very, very wisely, uh, against these folks. Um, not that they're bad. They just don't know any better. Really. I think. Okay. Also getting your life. I learned this one from listening to uh, an interview with Roseanne Barr a long time ago. And I love this so much because it was, it like blew my mind. Um, she talks about power and assuming power. And uh, it's great because she goes, you know, you have to claim your own power, claim your own power. Nobody's going to give it to you. You have to claim your own power. And for the longest time, I didn't really understand that one. Um, and I didn't understand it until I really took responsibility for my own stuff. And that can be, you know, uh, bill paying, whatever, waking up every morning and going to exercise like you said you were gonna, doing those basic things of assuming power. And then there's on a bigger level of assuming power, assuming responsibility, which is never, you know, not laying blame. Uh, to other people for how you're feeling, doing what you're doing. You know, it's never really anyone else's fault that you're not doing X, Y, and Z in your life. Uh, yes, there are responsibilities that may hinder your ability to do things at times, but it, it's ultimately, it's not the boss's fault. It's not your mommy and daddy's fault that you, you're you not doing things in life that you'd like to be doing. It's not your spouse's fault. It's not your therapist's fault. It's not your best friend's fault. It's nobody's fault, but your own. Um, if you're not assuming emotional responsibility for the shit that you haven't dealt with, the stuff you need to deal with to go forward. And that's a, and that's a big one. And also assuming power, protecting yourself. I talk about that a lot on the show, self-protection and, uh, protecting your interests. Again, another show business reference, Howard Stern, I was listening to him while just talk on a show about, um, agents and managers. And he, he said that he's like, you know, you, uh, you always have to do what's best for you because the agents, the managers are going to try to talk you into doing what they want you to do. But ultimately at the end of the day, you have to do what's best for you. And, uh, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, that's fucking, yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, a lot of the times we want to trust the man in the suit. You want to trust, uh, you want to trust the boss to look after you. You want to trust other people to assume responsibility for you because it's way easier and it feels good to be taken care of, right? But ultimately, you have to uh, keep your eye on your own stuff and do what's best for you, which is hard to do, man, because haters going to hate. Okay. Also, some more wisdom from who? Dan Pena, uh, my favorite. Hold on. Where is he? Here, let's hear what, let's, this premise is my favorite. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's right. What does that mean? Getting your life means don't fuck with losers, man. Don't mess with the GD losers. And who are losers? Are these people that are just broke? No, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about people that don't want to get their lives. People who have no interest in getting their lives. People who are addicted to things, who, uh, make your life worse by being in it. Uh, the people that are going to bum you out for trying when you're getting your life, they kind of bum you out about it, right? They kind of want to pull you down with them instead of elevating you and helping you raise your game up. The haters, the, the, uh, the succubus, the succubi that you may be related to. Uh, these people are, can be your relatives just so you know, doesn't fucking matter. Um, yeah, hang out with people. I think that are going to elevate your game. I, 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 people that are smarter than you, funnier than you, uh, more talented than you. Cause I think that's where you learn. And I'm not, that's not to say I don't have friends that are, you know, 
I don't want to say beneath that level, but you know, I have friends from that I've had since I was fucking 12 and they will always be my friends. But, and for the most part, they're, they're awesome. Wait, they all are awesome. I don't have shit dick friends. Um, but they're awesome. And every one of them I learned from and I go, Oh yeah, that's fucking interesting. The only reason I hesitate is because they're not all in showbiz. <laughs> so I'm like, wait a minute, is so-and-so a better comedian? No, that's because they're not comedians. <laughs> I have regular friend people in the world. Thank God. <laughs> uh, but don't fuck with losers, man. Losers will bring you down faster than anything. And they do it. It's a subtle thing too, you know. Ugh, it's the worst. So don't fuck with no losers. All right, what else do I have? Okay. Always listen to the intuition, right? In Buddhism, the small, still voice. That's why you meditate. That's why you sit still a lot and you just listen to your gut on stuff. Uh, that's the hardest one to do if you're not really programmed to do that. They don't really teach you that in school. It's not something your parents probably taught you how to do to listen to your own guidance system. Um, but that's something you have to cultivate on your own. You know, you know when shit feels bad. You know when something's wrong because you avoid it. You don't like doing it. Uh, you don't feel good about something. If if you're hard, if you're obsessing over something, something's wrong. Usually means there's something that you need to work out with your shrink. But that's a fucking huge one. Okay, and lastly, uh, the wisdom of my hero, Phyllis Diller. I fucking love Phyllis Diller. She's dead, but before she died, um, she wrote a great book called her autobiography, Like a Lampshade in a Whorehouse. And uh, she credits the book, The Magic of Believing, uh, for being the book that turned her life around. She was 35 years old. She had four children. And she was working as a copywriter in San Francisco, and uh, and there were no, there was no such thing as a female comic like that. She started. There was maybe like one or two ladies at the time doing it, and um, and yeah. So she took the leap and became uh, a female comic, and is the the godmother of all female comedians. Uh, but she credits the book, The Magic of Believing, and that was her big thing was believing in yourself. And if you read that autobiography. You'll see what it what it feels like to be in the head of somebody with that much belief in themselves, and also a lot of love. I do believe she was a very loving uh, individual, and I know that because I I sent her like my comedy set many many years ago, many years ago, and I asked her to give me notes on my act, and she fucking did. And I remember I I sent her my act, and then three days later I get a voicemail. And it's, hello, this is Phyllis Diller. <laughs> I have some notes for your act. And I called her back and she gave me some great notes that I still apply to this day. And there you go. Phyllis Diller, fucking gold. That lady was magic. Um, so there we go. Uh, oh, and don't do stuff you hate. Wayne Dyer, don't be guilted into shit you hate doing. That's a big one, too. You still going to holidays, doing doing five Christmases because your parents divorced and now you have to pay the price of going to fucking this person's house and that person's house and then you got to go to Uncle Joey's and Bobby's. Blah, 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 blah. Uh-uh. Fuck that shit. Stop it. Stop doing it. It's a life ruiner. Unless you like spending your Christmas day in five different houses. <laughs> don't do shit you hate with people you don't like. That's... Phew. I'm not talking about responsibility stuff. I mean, you always have to do things you don't like. I'm talking about shit you hate that you cannot do anymore. People you don't want to associate with. Plans you don't want to do. Just say no. Just don't fucking do it. Seriously, it's going to make your life so much happier. Okay, let's get into some emails. I'm very excited. So anyway, that was my philosophy on getting your life. I hope that brings clarity. Email me if you have any questions. That's deepbropodcast at uh, gmail.com. But that's that's what I live by, folks. That's pretty much um, the uh, the premise the premises that I live by. Okay. So, oh, here we go. Let's do our email intro. You want to know why you're all fucked up? Okay. Uh, this one comes from Nicole. She writes, hello, I wanted to write you to thank you for opening up about your relationship with your mother and how her mental illness affected your life. My husband and I are huge YMH and TDB fans. Thank you very much. And it really helps to tell my husband to check out whatever podcast you're on. 
to listen to him have a better understanding of how damaging BPD mothers can be. So BPD is an acronym for borderline personality disorder. That's what my mother had. And she writes in, I too have a mother with severe BPD. She's also a prescription drug addict, Xanax and Adderall. And the hardest thing to deal with is that she refuses any kind of treatment and doesn't believe she has a problem. Yeah, that sounds about right. She is physically, verbally, and emotionally abusive, and I have chosen to not have any contact with her and have not spoken to her in two plus years. Congratulations. That's very good. And after almost two years of infertility, I am finally pregnant. Yay. Congratulations. 22 weeks today. And I'm so fucking excited about it, but I am really struggling with not having a mother present to guide me through all of this. I feel so alone. I don't even want my mother, I don't even want my mother around because she's such a monster. I just want a mother. It has been difficult to go baby shopping because all I see in the stores are women with their mothers laughing and smiling. I am envious of my friends' relationships with their mothers and I'm constantly reminding them to cherish every minute of it. My mother-in-law and I are not close and she was recently diagnosed with early onset of dementia. So there's a dead end road too. I guess I just wanted to see if you had any words of wisdom or tips on how to deal with being pregnant, giving birth and raising LJ without a mother figure to help you and support you. Lots of love, Nicole. Well, Nicole, firstly, congratulations on your boo-boo. That's fucking amaze. And that's a long road, uh, two years of infertility. So that's, that's awesome. I'm super stoked for you. And, um, And also, congratulations on 86ing the borderline mom for two plus years. (laughs) That's really fucking good, man. Oh, that's so, it's so hard to do. It really is. If you feel like such a a schmuck when you do that, but the truth is, is that uh, you're protecting yourself, you're protecting your spouse, and you're protecting uh, your future boo boo, your baby jeans from uh, the nightmare of being around a drug. A drug addicted borderline mom, and and the truth of it is, you know, it, it it's not that you can't be treated with borderline personality disorder. It's it's that you have they have to get the treatment in order for you to be in any sort of relationship with someone with BPD because that is fucking <laughs> it's a lot, man. It's heavy. It's a lot to deal with. Uh, and and so you know, like I said, if they get treatment, great, you're in it. But if not, forget it. You got to cut it out. So I'm proud of you that uh, you're able to do that. It's fucking amazing. Sorry to hear that your mother-in-law um, isn't going to be uh, a good replacement for your mom. Um, what was your question? Wisdom or tip? How do you with them? Yeah, I mean, look, man. Mm, I will say because I, I lost my mother while I was pregnant with Ellis. I was like five or six months pregnant, and I I think that was even like it was a real wacky experience because. To lose your mom as you're becoming a mother was very, very, very weird and complicated. And I, uh, I'm still trying to sort that one out. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I think all I can say to you is that it just sucks. Like it, it's just going to suck a little. Um, and it's unnatural. You know, you're supposed to have a mother there to help you learn to be a mother and to kind of help you deal with these feelings and, and show you like, this is how you diaper a baby. I guess this is, this is how you do this and that and let me help you. And, um, yeah. And it's unfortunate and I'm just sorry that you're not going to get that. And, uh, I mean, look, I, I know that it fucked with me and may in a, in a big way. And, and I wasn't even really conscious of it, I think for a long time, but I mean, there's just going to be a, a, a broken circle there. And I think that that's something that you just, um, will have to grieve, unfortunately. I mean, I'm kind of fortunate in a way that my mother died a physical death while I was pregnant because it, it helped me kind of grieve her not being a mother, you know, because she wasn't able to because she was too ill. And, uh, you know, that's just part of the process of having a BPD mom is uh, you, you really do have to grieve the loss. And a lot of times those of us uh, with borderline parents, usually mothers, uh, you got to grieve them as they're living because as many of you know, if you, if you're not familiar with this, what borderline is, uh, the, their lives generally don't end well, uh, borderlines. <laughs> Usually it's suicide, a drug addiction. Um, they die earlier than, than most. 
So, I mean, I was always bracing myself for the phone call of when my mom was going to die. I always knew it was going to happen. And, you know, and so when you get the call, it's almost a relief because you're like, oh, this is, yeah, I've been waiting for this, the, the physical nail in the coffin of the metaphorical death of the mother. So now, now that we've accepted what is, and I think that's really key. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you just got to unfortunately grieve the loss of the mom is um, and something I wish I would have done more of is reach out to the mothers that I'm already friends with. I, I would say reach out to the moms that are varsity moms is what I call them. The, the ones that have been through the infant period and have now like four or five, six, seven year olds. So they can kind of go, look, it gets way better here. Uh, this is, you know, this is going to work out. I, I did a podcast with my friend Kat Sides, if you want to listen to that. She's a varsity mom. She has two children that are now teenagers, which is bananas to me. And I did, I spoke to Kat while I was a new newer mother to Ellis. And you can hear that dialogue of my complete anxiety and her complete calmness. <laughs> and part of that might be because she's Hawaiian. I feel like they're just naturally calmer people. But um but yeah, finding the moms around you that are awesome that you can look to as guideposts and and talk to them and let them help you. I think a lot of women want to kind of reach back and help the, the newer moms get through that that first year because it is tough. Um, and for giving birth and being pregnant, one thing I kind of wish I would have done too, and I haven't never I haven't done it, but I hear that it's great. If you can find a doula, and I know that sounds super hippy dippy. But I hear that these doulas are awesome because they help, they help, they're there for you, the mother. They help you with your feelings, your physical being, the birth. I don't think it's necessarily that if you hire a doula, you're going to end up birthing in some water tub, uh, you know, next to a creek with a bunch of naked, long haired hippies uh, in a drum circle. I don't think it means that. You can still have birth in a hospital with a doula, from what I understand. Because uh, I fucking heard that word and I was like, no, dude, no, no one's going to be rubbing olive oil on my taint and singing Hare Krishna as I give birth to this kid. Like we're doing this in the hospital with drugs, yo. But yes, a doula will help you go through the pregnancy and the giving birth and I believe postpartum care and kind of help you, the mom, because that's really what you're craving, I think is what you're talking about. I, I felt this exact same way that I, I didn't want my mother, but I wanted a mother to mother me so that I could mother my son. And I know it, it, it sounds abstract, but yes, you're absolutely right. You're going to need that person. And I think a doula might be a great way to do that. And that is something, if I have a second kid, I will look into. Because look, your husbands can support you only so much. And friends, if you have a really close girlfriend who's been through it that can help you, that would be great too. But you really need somebody to take care of you. And that is what the mother what your mother figure should do for you. Do you have a mother figure? That's another option. Is there a woman in your life that is older that maybe you're not related to an aunt, a grandmother, somebody who you can look to? That would be really great as well. Um, and as far as raising LJ, I, I mean, look, I, I, I read books. I talk to my friends. I talk to my shrink. I think more than anybody, I talk to my fucking shrink, dude. Like, is this right? Am I doing this right? Is this cool? Is it, you know, I, I check in with her <laughs> um, and I read a lot of books and I check in with my friends. So you just have to, you look, what you, what you lack in the script of life that you're supposed to have, you just rewrite it. You just kind of fill in the blanks with different people in different circumstances. And that's how you get through these times. And again, I'm sorry. Um, it is fucked up, man. I, I will tell you, it, it's not cool. Like, <laughs> I know I felt the same way. I remember, uh, I was like, I was like, it's some, we were on, on, on the baby moon and I looked over and I remember seeing like a mom and a daughter and they were laying right next to me and I, you know, I was like five months pregnant and my mother just died. And I remember looking over and just watching these two, you know, just giggling, mommy and daughter just <laughs> okay well let's call chip after maybe we can get some hot dogs on the way home like just 
fucking whimsically planning their life. You know, it was like the perfect mom too. Like in my mind, Blythe Danner is the perfect mom, right? You know, who she is like blonde, kind of like soft hair that she doesn't mind if you play with and blue eyes and just like really kind and all she does is bake cookies all day and just she just waits for you to come over and hang out with her and you guys can have a glass of rosé and just chuckle about how silly your dad and your brothers are like oh. <laughs> and i just remember looking over at them and being like you fucking bitches how dare you how dare you have what i will never have <laughs> ah, what can you do but then you know i'm sure you have things in your life that uh, other people would look at and go, gosh, I wish I had what she has. I wish this and that and the other. So I don't think anyone gets it all. So you just try to, you pick and choose, man. You pick and choose the people in your life who replace the ones that should have been there. That's what I try to do. Anyway, good luck to you, Nicole. And uh, email me again. Let me know. Look into that doula shit, man. Seriously. Serious. Seriously. Okay. So this is for the youngins, the little boo-boos listening, my millennials, This is too old to be getting my life on a cruise ship is the subject. Okay. I'm a 25 year old professional dancer who just landed a gig performing on a cruise ship, which means I am away. I'm away from home, rehearsing, traveling and dancing for seven months. This is my ultimate dream job and I couldn't be more excited. However, I have a boyfriend of four and a half years that I am leaving to go on this journey. We have been living together for the past few years, have two beautiful cats and have really started to create a great life together. We are both committed to trying our hardest to make this work while I'm away. However, I have done the cruise ship job once before, three years ago, and it nearly broke us. Due to many reasons, it wasn't healthy for me to be on a ship and maintain a land life relationship, which is why I gave this up in the first place. I spent my time up until now trying to find a job that gave me as much fulfillment as performing and traveling, but I've found nothing. So here I am as excited as I am to begin this new journey. I have horrible guilt about leaving my boyfriend and our life behind. All our friends are having babies, getting married, buying houses, and I'm realizing I am nowhere near that point. I expected to feel jealous while at their weddings and showers, but I actually don't envy them at all. I would rather be traveling the world and living with minimal responsibility than being tied down to mortgages, daycare, and debt. Is this a bad mentality to have at nearly 26? Should I get over this dream and grow up already? Okay. Am I a horrible person for being so willing to leave our life together? She's asking. Am I selfish for feeling the need to do this well? Not really thinking about how it impacts him and his life. Please help me get my life and not be so fucked up. Okay. Wow. Wow. Now this is it. This is why I wanted to do the principles of getting your life. This is the essence of the getting your life email. Uh, This is what older people say to 20 somethings all the time. Don't get married early. Don't get the mortgage early. Don't get the baby early. Don't do that shit in your 20s early because you haven't figured out who you are, right? That's what older people are always saying to you guys for this fucking reason. So that you're free. You're free to do all this stuff in your 20s. And does this make you selfish, guilty, horrible girlfriend to leave your your boyfriend that you're living with right now to go do the thing that you're supposed to be doing in your twenties, which is dancing and going on cruise ships and making out with, you know, Russian dancers on the boat. Uh, you're supposed to be doing this shit, dude. This is what your twenties are about. This is exactly what you should be doing. Exactly. And, and for once I will say, I'm glad you're only living with this boyfriend Normally, I don't, I don't advocate just shacking up with dudes because this does make it harder, see, to go and do the things you should be doing in your young 20-year-old, uh, your 26-year-old life. And it's hilarious that you think that <laughs> this is, and this is it too. See, this is the crux of it is that you're 26, right? And all there's your, there's your group of friends. Now, there are people who at 26 know exactly what they want. They got the career, they got the job, the whatever, the, the house, they got the spouse and they got the babies and they do it at 26. And for them, that works great. And I'm not poo-pooing that existence. And then there are other kids like you who go, I think I'm a dancer. I think I want to travel the world. I think I have these other things. And you feel the pressure, right? That pressure of like, but all my friends are 26 and they have mortgages and all my friends are 26 and they're in law school and they're doing all this shit I'm supposed to be doing. And you look at them and you go, I guess I should do that too. 
That's the exact moment of getting your life. That's the, this is the exact moment that I have been trying to articulate on the show since the beginning is that this is a trap. You're in it right now, man. This is a fucking trap. I can see the prongs. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, where they get, they get foxes in and, and when game wildlife that, that the, the trap is open right now, the, the iron teeth are open and there's leaves covering it. And the leaves are the promise of the, the boyfriend, the marriage, the cats, the, the, you already live with him. It's so much easier. Why don't you just stay? You're going to ruin his life. How can he survive without you for seven months? And all your friends are getting married and everyone else is having children. And you're going to be this old spinster of 27. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, who doesn't have children? How do, uh, uh, the trap is laid out and that's the fucking trap. The societal shit that's going to tell you. Stay with your boyfriend. Just do what you're supposed to do. So this is where it is. This is the getting your life part of, of the journey where it takes the courage. Remember what's number one? Existence precedes essence, right? You're defining who you are right now. This moment means everything. Are you going to be afraid? Are you going to succumb to fear? Are you going to do what you think you're supposed to do? Or are you going to get your life, be responsible for who you are, assert your power and get on the fucking cruise ship? And go for seven months and go dance your little heart out and enjoy it and go meet people. And if you come back and this dude's still there, great. You can do all those things later. Do you have to do them right now? Seven months, he'll still be there. The castle still be there. Everything's going to fucking still be there. Don't worry about it. Go do it. Go do your 20s. This is what it's about. This is, this is it. This is the moment. And here's the, the other side is, yeah, you can, you can say no to your true desires and then you can, uh, you can ask yourself what if when you're in your 40s and you've got the kids and the mortgage and there's no way you're getting on a cruise ship when you've got little babies at home. You think that's just going to happen? No. So you do all of it now and you're still fertile. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the fucking kids. You're fine. Go freeze your eggs if, if that's the big worry. Go freeze them now. But listen, dude, go get your ass on that ship. And you tell that boyfriend, you tell that boyfriend if he, you know, it'll be, he'll be there. It'll be fine, dude. It'll all be, it'll all be good. Trust me. So there you go. She's going to meet Bert on the ship too. That's hilarious. You're hoping to have a double vodka with him. She writes, I hope to have double vodka with him while he shares his secrets on how to get really fat. Well, don't worry. Uh, Bert will be there. He'll be at the buffet line. You can go get fat as shit with him. (laughs) Okay, this came in. This is an interesting uh, email. Episode 123, uh, I I read an email about a woman who was debating whether or not to force her son to take swimming lessons. And the kid was petrified of the water and, you know, was panicking. And I I think the verdict was don't force the kid to do anything he doesn't want to do. Uh, Like if he's really panicking, I would say don't traumatize him and maybe, maybe later he can learn how to swim. So uh, this email came in from a gentleman uh, who had a similar thing. Okay. So he writes, as a former little boy, now a 23 year old man who hated the water just as much as Nadine's son. That's the name of the person who wrote in the email. I would strongly suggest to have him persevere and learn the skill and others, even though he doesn't like them and not just because they're practical. The reason I say this is because my parents did not force me to keep going to swim lessons when I was little. The end result of this was, of course, that I never really learned how to swim. And because I couldn't swim, I became even more afraid of water. I can't tell you the number of opportunities I missed out on as a teenager and young adult because I was too afraid or too incapable to go along with my friends who were all confident swimmers. Saying no to these types of things was always humiliating, even if I didn't have to give a reason. Fine, you might say, but swimming is just one of the small aspects of your life. So why are you writing this long ass email? Of course, you're right. It is just a tiny part of my life, but more important than swimming is the lessons is the lesson that kid is learning when you let them, when you let them, I think, let them do something they don't like it. Wait, hold on. When you let them something, everyone, they don't like it. I don't know what that means. I think he's saying basically don't let your kid get away with being scared of something and, uh, and, and, and force them to do it. Okay. It started out as my parents letting me skip swimming lessons snowballed into me quitting pretty much every activity I ever started at the first signs of adversity. One after another, I quit baseball, tennis, running, skiing, boy scouts, you name it. 
Over time, I learned that if I wasn't good at something right from the start, I shouldn't even bother because putting in the time and effort to get better wasn't easy and it wasn't fun. Moreover, if I put in the time and the effort to do something hard, I still might fail. So quitting came easily and without any immediate consequences. By the time I finished high school, all I wanted to do was sit at home and play video games with my three friends because that's pretty much all I was naturally good at. I almost never risked putting myself out there to meet new people or have new experiences, and it was really depressing and lonely. Uh, But he's happy to say I was able to get out of my shell in college and improve myself in a lot of ways, including finally learning how to swim. But this aversion I have to any risk still holds me back before any more than anything else. In the past five years, I haven't had any real romantic relationships other than drunken makeouts. Anytime I'm interested in a girl, I've been totally paralyzed by the fear I have of taking risk and opening myself up to rejection. Okay. And he's even nervous of writing this email, he says, thinking that it might ever never be read. Well, there you go. You took a risk and I'm reading it right now. (laughs) He says he's slowly getting better at this kind of stuff, but I wouldn't want anyone else to have to go through this kind of struggle. Okay. So basically what he's trying to say is if I, if we're on a slippery slope, right? If you say no, if you say it's all right, kid, you don't have to do this. Then how many other things are we going to let off the hook? And I, I had the same thing happen to me when I was a kid. I remember being like, I just don't like gymnastics. Okay. You don't have to go anymore. And then all of a sudden nobody would drive me to gymnastics. Or uh, I want to take tap dancing, but it's hard. You want to quit? Yeah. Okay, you can quit. Like my parents did the same thing where they just let me quit everything I ever started. I agree. So by the time I was an adult, I was like, wait, you have to persevere shit? Oh my God. Like stand-up was the only thing I stuck with basically ever in philosophy. So I totally understand that is a valid point. Um, The very valid point. Thank you for writing in, sir. I'm assuming your pronoun, JD. Um, I really, that's a, that's a very valid point. I mean, I guess it's a balance, right? You know, on the one hand, you don't want to be pushing a terrorized toddler into the pool if they're genuinely fucked up about it. On the other hand, if you allow them to just, uh, acquiesce to the fear of life and things, then are you teaching them that it's okay to be a pussy? I guess there's a balance. I guess you gotta, you gotta figure out what the balance is right for, for you and that kiddo, man, you know? Maybe there's an irrational fear underlying the fear of swimming. What's going on there? Is it a phobia? Is something else going on? Who knows? But very thought-provoking. And uh, thank you for sending that one in, Mr. J.D. Very good. Okay, one last one. And then I got to go get my life uh, together. Oh, wait, is that it? This one's crazy, you guys. Are you ready? This one I love. This one is under the file of you think your family's crazy. <laughs> I love this one. Okay. Um, I listen while I'm at work. I've been going through a lot these few days, but I'd like to know your insight on one thing. How do I deal with this secret? I've always wondered who my biological father was and my mother refused to tell me. Then I started to guess and ask questions. Long story short, I had found out that my aunt's ex-husband and father to my three cousins is also my father. Plus, he has three more kids from two other women, and I have two nephews as well. She made me swear not to tell anyone. In May of this year, my oldest sister slash cousin suddenly passed away at the age of 26, and she has two young children, a boyfriend and a stepchild, I have so much regret and guilt that I didn't tell her slash them or at least visit more. I've been so busy working lately and skipped Christmas last year for the first time, her last Christmas with us. I'm really tempted to tell the other two girls and maybe have a relationship with them, but I don't know what to do. Girl. (laughs) That's some crazy shit, man. That was an episode of Springer, huh? God damn. I mean, look, that's a lot, dude. That's a lot of shit right there. Um, So basically, you found out that your uncle is also your father. For those of you who are trying to figure this out, because it took me like three reads, my aunt's ex-husband is also my father. So you have an aunt and uncle. It's the aunt's ex-husband, which is your ex-uncle, essentially, is really your dad. Okay. Now, I got to wrap my head around this. So firstly... 
everyone's family has secrets. There's always weird stuff that happens, right, in uh, in family units. My question to you, because I, I probably need more information on this one, but why is everybody protecting this guy, your dad? Why is this such a sacred cow uh, that nobody knows the identity of the dad? And, and, uh, and is this because he's banged? I guess your mother too, and then your mother's sister, and then there's children ensuing, and then is that what's wrong? Is that why we're upset? And how old are these kids? You know, are we talking little little baby babies that this is going to really screw them up? I think you have to you have to weigh the damage you're going to do here on something like this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, again, on the one hand, what's the benefit to telling these people? Like, does it make your hangouts more meaningful? Um, it says you skipped last year. I'm not sure why. Is it that you don't like being around them or you genuinely were busy? That's fine. Uh, that's a tough one, dude. I mean, some family secrets are meant to just stay in the closet. I, I'm not a big believer in like uh, honesty for the sake of honesty. I don't think that that's very useful. Um, I don't know why anybody fucking thinks that is. I think you have to ask yourself, what's the damage here that's going to be done? How many people's lives are you going to really wreak havoc upon by revealing that your uncle is your father? (laughs) Did I just say that on this show? (sighs) Who am I? Who are we? Um, On the other hand, why is everybody protecting this guy who clearly, clearly doesn't give a shit about spreading his seed across this land. Because you write that he has three more kids from two other women, and you have two nephews as well. So it sounds like everybody's worried about protecting this asshole's identity. Sorry, no offense. I don't know your dad, but he ain't too concerned. Doesn't sound like he's worried. So I don't know why we're protecting him. Uh, And I'm leaning more towards that right now, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, so what, why are we protecting him? Unless there's some reason I don't know that you, it would be more advantageous. I'm talking about littles involved. If there's little kiddos who you would really be devastating their lives, I wouldn't rock the boat. Uh, I would wait until people are at appropriate ages and then reveal, maybe wait until people are older, 18, I'm thinking 18, and then you can wreck people's uh, lives. But I think until people are 18, they don't need to know. Maybe tell everyone who's an adult, don't let the little littles know, because why do you want to fuck up their lives? Let them live under the illusion that their daddy is their daddy, like you did until you were an adult. Um, Can the adults keep secrets? I don't know. Uh, I'm inclined to say tell the adults, but keep it from the kids if, if you can. And if you think the adults can't keep it from the kids, then do not tell them. It really is a matter of what are you going to get out of it, you know? What are you going to get? What's to gain here? The truth being revealed? I don't know. It's too complicated, guys. Sorry. I just, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck to say to you, honestly. it's That's a pretty gnarly one. But uh, again, it sounds like your dad is a real piece of work, and he doesn't give a fuck, so I don't know why you guys are all protecting the the, the dude that has been spreading his seed across America. Jesus Christ. Anyways, my heart goes out to you, boo-boo. And uh, will you please write back and let me know what you decided to do? Because that is some riveting shit. God damn. I'm sure that's in my family somewhere. My Some uncles, my dad is my brother, is my... Oh, I don't know, man. I gotta fucking... I gotta go lay down. <laughs> My my brain is racked from that one. Just figuring that, the genealogy of that tree. Wow. All those fucking roots to that family tree are knotted and tangled and gnarled. Huh? Okay. All right, guys. Uh, that's it for this week. Email me. That's deepropodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, and that's it. Until next week, that's been Deep Bros. And uh, hope you had, uh, hope you had a good time with me. I like you. All right. Until next week. Bye, buddies. Oh, that's the right one. Now what? I don't know. Philosophize with Philosophize with
It's Christina P, aka Miss Jeans. This ain't your mom's house. It's a different theme. Gotta be critically thinking. Like you caught up at a cocktail party, our thoughts start to sink in. John Locke, or was it Socrates? Aristotle or Plato, maybe Hippocrates. Got us talking all properly, topically. Just a comedian discussing these philosophies. Serious questions, silly people. What's that? That's deep, bro. It is the ultimate metaphor for life. And you know what that is? What? That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro. That's deep.